Right now, this is New Generation Declassified, and you're listening to an all-new New Generation Declassified here, just like you do every single week, that you check out the Chadster going back in time and talking about the finer days of professional wrestling. That is the WWF's New Generation, and this week, I kind of had my little brain thinking uh, in overdrive as I came off the Survivor Series 1996 episode and trying to figure out what we should cover next. I uh, have a guest coming on uh, for the following week's episode where we're going to go back and talk about the 96 Survivor Series and kind of some of the storylines going around the wrestling universe at that point. But that's also kind of what I wanted to jump on and talk about today. Uh, might not be the longest of the episodes that we have done, but one thing I will uh, like to preface is that although I'd like to... Pre- particularly stay with the WWF, I have to give the devil its due, and I have to talk about WCW and the impact that it had on the new generation era uh, without a shadow of a doubt, obviously pushing the WWF to, uh, I would say, greater heights as the competition became so stiff that they had to turn up the dial and change the wrestling business forever, um, which was prompted because of WCW. Now, if you're a current wrestling fan and you follow what's going on in the world of uh, the WWE, they just had war games this past week uh, at the Survivor Series. So kind of funny that WCW's signature fall match was taking place during the WWE's signature fall pay-per-view. A really cool crossover. Uh, WWE has also brought back Halloween Havoc and branded it with NXT's uh, big October event. But the War Games being at Survivor Series kind of got me thinking about the fact that the WWF didn't really do many exciting stipulation gimmicky matches of this caliber during the new generation years. And again, I put the new generation as being from January 93 to about February 97. Uh, They would brand themselves the new generation more along the lines of the mid to late 94 year through 95 into early 96. But when I say it's new generation, I mean, it's that era based off of the characters and some of the styles and some of the colors and some of the things that they were doing uh, from a production point of view, not necessarily just the branding of new generation, 
But you flip over to WCW and WCW was still doing things like the war games and doing things like the battle bowl or the lethal lottery. And, and, and those were very cool. Uh, and also world war three, the big giant ring with the, you know, 60 man battle Royal. Those were all very cool. But why did the WWF not do that much of the stipulation style matches or, you know, the big time uh, main event um, contests with a stipulation or with a, a gimmick attached or a, a big pay-per-view gimmick? Um, obviously, the Royal Rumble being what it is, I won't include the Royal Rumble. And same thing with the Survivor Series. I won't include the Survivor Series elimination matches. But looking at things like, okay, the War Games, a, a two-cage, uh, eight-man tag team match and all out war or, or the, the world war three concept where 60 men, three rings. I mean, you know, it's incredibly difficult to follow when you're watching it, but nonetheless, it's different. It's a little interesting. Uh, the battle bowl, uh, the, the, the winner getting the battle bowl ring, or you have the, uh, the, you know, the lethal lottery where you get mixed team members going against one another. And, you know, it's all just, it, it was very creative, but more along the lines of what WCW was doing uh, during that time, um, even to go as far as, you know, Road Wild 96 or Hog Wild 95. These were pay-per-views that were done at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in Sturgis, South Dakota. Well, you know, the WWF did do the Intrepid Body Slam Challenge on July 4th, 1993, the infamous Lex Luger Body Slam of Yokozuna, but they didn't do anything that was a specific outdoor event, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, uh, Northeast, even though they, they did do these on house shows, but they wasn't a Northeastern uh, fairground show, you know, that you look forward to every year on pay-per-view uh, in Massachusetts or, you know, on the beach in uh, the, the Jersey shore. They didn't do that kind of stuff. So WCW was a little bit more outside the box. And I was just kind of going through, the calendar years of 93, 94, 95, 96, and seeing like, all right, big time stipulation matches that I guess were a little outside of the box and, and not the norm for their traditional models, you know, just the uh, champion versus challenger. Uh, the first one that really caught my memory was the 1994 Survivor Series uh, title match between Bret Hart and Bob Backlund, which is where Bob Backlund ends up winning the WWF championship because Owen Hart throws the towel in as Bret's in the uh, crossface chicken wing for uh, absolutely uh, eternity. Um, you know, something like seven to eight minutes in the chicken wing. Um, actually, excuse me, it was uh, Martha, uh, uh, Mrs. Hart, uh, Helen Hart, who threw the towel in because Owen putting on the Academy Award performance of crying his eyes out during Brett uh, not being able to escape the chicken wing uh, led to his mother throwing it in, blah, 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 blah. Mr. Backlund becomes a world champion. An I quit match, not terrible, or throwing in the towel, whatever they were calling it, because no, they had, you know what? They had the I quit match at WrestleMania 11. So it was a submission match and then the I quit match. Different. Maybe not the best. I think the 94 Survivor Series match is a million times better than the WrestleMania 11 contest. But still, for the WWF, they would pull out something like that for a big-time show like a Survivor Series. 
uh, but not themed around it, you know, not encompassing the uh, the whole entire show being all submission matches. Um, actually, I'll even go back to the 94 Royal Rumble. Before that, we saw the first really big casket match. Now, they had done casket match before this, but it wasn't the sole focus of the show. You still had the Royal Rumble. Um, what would you do if the WWF had something like the war games in 1995 or 1994 or 1996 with that roster, who would you put on a war games team for, let's say, you know, the, uh, the 96 side of, uh, of, of a, of a WWF roster, you know, would you put the bulldog and Owen with Vader and maybe, you know, who would be your fourth guy, you know, uh, Steve Austin against Brett, Shawn Michaels, Sid and undertaker. I mean, like, what would you do? Would it be mankind, Instead of Vader, would you put the Undertaker on? I mean, I don't know. These are the things that we we can't kind of armchair quarterback. We would be like Tony Khan in his uh, fantasy booking in his E League, that was the the uh, laying of the groundwork for AEW. Uh, but that's not what we're here for. We're just here to kind of look at what it was historically that WCW helped push that envelope. Now we could also look at the King of the Ring, WWF King of the Ring every year, a a sole focused pay per view with the king of the ring being the ultimate prize. But as the years went by, there was less, less emphasis on it. And by the time we got to the summer of 1997, it was, there was four matches on the show and it was, uh, it was really not a, even though it was called king of the ring and it was crowning the new king. It was not the sole focus like it had been in years before. And I wonder why they decided to really uh, steer away from it. It had to be because of that awful, 1995 uh, pay-per-view. Um, I, I can't think of any other reason why they would abandon it in 95, uh, or excuse me, 97, uh, because in 96, they shrunk it a little bit more. And by 97, it was four matches. And uh, we got our new King, uh, King Triple H in 1997. Um, but then what if WCW had done something like a King of the Ring, you know, a, uh, a crowning of a, of a king to have on TV for the full year. What if they had done something like that? Who would the king of WCW been? You know, would you see a a Lord Stephen Regal winning the the King of the Ring? You know, would you see uh, one of their top bad guys? You know, a uh, what if Ric Flair won the King of the Ring? We got King Flair. You know, these are the weird things that if you switched the stipulation matches or you switch the concepts from pay per view, uh, excuse me, from promotion to promotion be interesting to see what you could figure out. Um, you know, again, if you had your own E-League or you had a wrestling figure league, you could probably do that on your own and combine all the rosters that you wanted. Um, but at WrestleMania, you know, there was never that huge, huge stipulation match. You know, the, we got the uh, Iron Man, but it wasn't, to me, something that... I, I never loved that match. I never loved the Iron Man uh, contest especially that one with Sean and Brett. It just never really penetrated my brain as something I liked. So I always kind of let that WrestleMania just kind of slide by and don't really acknowledge it because it wasn't uh, very good. But I don't know. I wish, I wish, wish, wish we had a War Games style match. Now, where they got creative was the 95 Survivor Series wildcard concept. And we talked about that with uh, Shane Douglas about a month ago, you know, where we had a mix of heels and faces trying to get along for one night only 
And I love the concept of it, and they never did it ever again. And it would have been pretty sweet to see it a few years down the road as they changed the formats a little bit. Yeah, Shawn Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, the British Bulldog, and Psycho Sid taking on Razor Ramon, Yokozuna, Owen, and the Dean. And 27 minutes, so it got a lot of time. I love that concept. I th- I wish they could have done that a little bit more, um, but nonetheless, not something that they did uh, carry. Here's one thing that I love that the WCW never did, and I still kind of cringe when I go back and see it, whether it's on a timeline or whether it's uh, somewhere in uh, uh, you know the Peacock database or the Plex database or something like that. But the awful, awful, awful Raw Bowl, which was filmed in 1995, I believe it was, uh, broadcast in 96. But the Raw Bowl is one of the worst pieces of shit to ever be produced by WWF slash WWE television. I mean, it is like incredibly corny. The football puns will beat you so hard over the head that you'll be tapped into submission just based off of how how annoying uh, it really is. But oh my gosh, the raw bowl! For the love of God, I'm trying to find the results as I'm uh, as I'm talking about this. But I believe they filmed it in '95, and it was it the first. Yes, so they filmed it December 18th, 1995, at the Bob Carpenter Center in Newark, Delaware. And it was broadcast on January 1st, 1996, included the announcement that Shawn Michaels would be holding a press conference the following week featuring a, uh, uh, oh, oh, that was to build up the, uh, the return after the uh, concussion storyline that he had. It also featured uh, billionaire Ted Raslin war room. So notable, I guess for that, but oh my goodness. Oh, it also was the night that they announced that Vader would be participating in the Royal Rumble. That was a a first-time viewing of Vader on WWF television. But here's the match. The WWF Tag Team Champions, the Smoking Guns, defeated Psycho Sid and the 1-2-3 Kid, Owen Hart and Yokozuna, Intercontinental Champion Razor Ramon, and Savio Vega uh, in the Raw Bowl Elimination Match. The Elimination... Okay, so... Wow, the 1-2-3 kid pins Razor Ramon after a clothesline to the back of the head by Sid. Wow, not bad. Uh, the kid getting a victory over Razor Ramon. Um, who else was in this match? Uh, the Brooklyn Brawler presented the gun. Oh, that was right. <laughs> the Lombardi Trophy. They presented the Lombardi Trophy to the winner of the Raw Bowl. The Raw Bowl being won by the Smoking Guns. And they were presented a a trophy by the Brooklyn Brawler, Steve Lombardi, who presented the Lombardi trophy. Uh, And uh, yeah, so everybody had a funny little uh, number attached to them. And uh, the main event of the show was the rematch of the 1995 Survivor Series. Or excuse me, SummerSlam scene, Diesel pinning King Mabel in eight seconds following a boot to the face. After the match, Diesel hit the powerbomb on Moe. And after the bout, Jerry Lawler attempted to interview Diesel, but he walked on past Lawler and selected Ashley, the Raw Queen, to do the interview backstage. So not something that you would really want to see. All the wrestlers dressed up like football players with the eye black. Super corny. But again, could you see WCW doing something like that? 
where they were going to take Sting and Luger and Flair and Arn Anderson and the Horsemen and put them in uh, the costumes. Now, I think there's one War Games uh, pay-per-view poster that has a couple, I think Sid and Arn and maybe Barry Windham in like fatigues and uh, camouflage paint, but still. It's just not something that you have to see. That is a total WWF style uh, attraction. Seeing the guys dressed up like the uh, the, the football players. Uh, just looking ahead here, you also had taped that night was the January eighth edition of Monday Night Raw, as well as the January fifteenth edition of Monday Night Raw. So almost all the way to the Royal Rumble. You have uh, raw taped and in the can from the end of 1995. That's incredible. And that to me is it's something that's a little bit of a lost art. Now, I know promotions do television uh, tapings in, in one large chunk. You know, I know Impact does it. MLW does it. And sometimes MLW tapes so far in advance that folks from their roster have already left the promotion and debuted in other places. And they're still on MLW TV. But just picture a mainstream company like the WWF taping pivotal, pivotal weeks of television at the tail end of 1995, December 18th, 1995, and not broadcasting some of that till almost a month later. It's incredible. And if we had it now, I mean, would anybody really feel like watching it? You know, then we could get spoilers. You could get them by calling a hotline, or I'm sure Meltzer probably had them in The Observer. I think Wade Keller did as well. But you know, what were you going to do? You know, you just wait to see it because I didn't have 75 other options of wrestling. I could watch during the week. I had one show that I look forward to on Monday night and I'd, I'd wait, I'd wait that month if I saw a, a list of spoilers, but now it's like, who cares? Nobody would watch it. If it was on USA uh, taped a month prior, I think that's too far in advance. Um, but again, also kind of um, fitting the model of this time Getting a lot out of a little. Not a big uh, uh, place, this uh, Bob Carpenter Center. You know, let's see what the official attendance would be for a WWF show or what the Bob Carpenter Center would hold or what the hell is the Bob Carpenter Center even called right now? It is still called the Bob Carpenter Center. The capacity is 5,000 people. So again, what are you really expecting? You're not getting the biggest arenas in the world in 95. So let's just tape as much television as we possibly can and hope for the best uh, with this kind of thin WWF roster. Also, a little bit of a funny note on the uh, January 15th edition of uh, 1996's Raw. Main event, Undertaker versus Isaac Yankum. So obviously, that would be a match just a few years down the road. That would be a marquee WrestleMania contest. The future Kane, Mr. Glenn Jacobs. Uh, and the Isaac Yankum persona getting those main event matches against the undertaker, even in 95 as the evil dentist, Isaac Yankum. Uh, but how about what WCW did in terms of pushing the envelope? You know, and this is something I would love to analyze uh, a show or two and kind of see where they're at, uh, you know, week at a time. There are a ton of YouTube channels that do that stuff. I've never personally done it. I've watched every first year edition of nitro, I've watched every first year edition of Raw 93 and then Nitro 95. Uh, I've also seen every 94 Raw to the best of my knowledge. Uh, these were DVD sets that I remember picking up off crazymax.org for all of us old school tape trading fans. I uh, would do a lot of DVD trading on there. You'd sell a lot of DVD copies. Uh, but 
it was definitely fun to be able to get a whole season and a DVD spindle back in the day. And I remember my uh, TNPT uh, cohort, Mr. John Paz and I would just be like almost every day. It's like getting new packages of what did you get, you know, and swapping uh, stuff that maybe we got a double of, or, you know, Oh, I didn't mean to get that. You know, how about we trade for this? I mean, it's incredible the amount of stuff we were watching, but what John and I used to talk about a lot back in the day was the WCW versus WWF debate. He would always say that 94, 95 WCW was awesome. I was just never really into it because I was more of a WWF purist. But when the NWO hit, just like everybody else who thought that they were cool for watching wrestling, I loved the NWO. I loved every little bit of it. So I began to watch WCW almost religiously for a few years, but still would always lean back to the WWF days. So John and I would always talk about, you know, those 94, 95 lean WCW years mixed with the lean WWF years, you know, I guess you probably have to give WCW the nod for the better all around product. But in 96, even though the NWO was taken off and even though we talked about it last week, that Shawn Michaels was uh, putting the ratings in the toilet, there's still glimpses, you know, there's still something in there that you can appreciate and find as you get into the later part of 96. But I think it's directly because WCW was pushing the envelope. Uh, and I, I mean, how do you not want to watch the show the night that they're in the uh, the the Disney MGM arena and the uh, the outsiders are beating up Rey Mysterio outside the, the the trailer or Hogan's coming out for the first time in the all black and uh, just incredible visuals. The outdoor feel of the nitros, it just it blew away Monday Night Raw at that point. But like we talked about in the 96 Survivor Series it really did make them step up their game just a little bit. So I think uh, going forward into 23 to kind of expand the palette of the new generation universe, we will cover a little bit more of uh, one versus the other, you know, maybe look at, I don't know, a group of shows from October 93 and see where they were at house show cards, see who had the better show, which one would you rather buy a ticket for? I don't know. Just trying to think outside the box as uh, we look at what else we can cover here in the uh, the New Generation universe. Uh, one thing I'm definitely going to uh, cover in the New Generation universe going into 23 is a de- debate I have had again with my TMPT brethren, Mr. Uh, John Paz is what's the deal with the Hulkster? Is he in the New Generation? Is he not in the New Generation? Is the Hogan era any bit of time Hulk Hogan is in the WWF or does he fit into my new generation timeline? Because to me, when he's not the big beefy Hulk Hogan, when he's not the guy who's legit, the biggest superstar on the planet and he's just popping in for cameos, is he, uh, is he the Hogan era or is he just a part of this hodgepodge new generation roster? You know, there was a lot of changes in that locker room that to me don't fit the Hogan era. And even though he was still the greatest wrestler and uh, in the world by the superstar standards, I just think it dropped him a little bit in that WWF landscape. And it's something that I'd love to uh, talk about with Mr. Uh, JP at some point. And I think we will, we talked about it uh, a few weeks back. We will do a debate. Uh, he thinks it's not, he thinks Hogan is not a part of this new generation. But it's what 
is the new generation covering? What is, is it just when they use the label, the new generation, or is it true blue 93 through 97? The choice is yours, folks. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just a matter of, uh, I guess, really, uh, your opinion. And I, my opinion is, I think it was 93 to early 97. Uh, on the tail end of the 97 is one of the more unique WWF stipulation matches that, again, I did like. It was kind of thrown together quickly. I was just listening to Jim Cornette talk about this match, and it was kind of thrown together fairly quickly. But the final four concept, you take the final four guys who were screwed out of the Royal Rumble, where Austin was technically eliminated but came back in and dumped Vader, Brett, and The Undertaker, and they put them all in a ring, and uh, we crowned a new champion with the final four in an elimination style. Um, one of the more memorable moments of that match is Vader's eye just getting completely busted open and just bleeding all over the place. Uh, very memorable Raw magazine cover that came out shortly after that. But that was an original concept that I thought was very cool. Could they pull it off now? Well, we've seen fatal four-way matches to death. This one was just really the first that was on a pay-per-view, so it had a little bit more of a special feeling to it. And, you know, the final four concept not being, you know, associated with wrestling, obviously being associated with college sports, college basketball, I kind of think it, it worked. I think it would have been a pretty cool uh, springtime event for the WWF to continue doing that, but I don't think it was a good buy rate, and I don't think that they really liked the results. Um, although Bret Hart did win the, the world title, drop it the next night to Sid on Raw, but great visual. Bret going home with the belt, never a bad thing, especially on a pay-per-view. Um, and if you think I missed anything, let me know. You know, I'm kind of throwing together some ideas as I'm sitting here. Uh, I give WCW, you know, the nod with the creativity a little bit more because I guess they were grasping for such uh, uh, any kind of viewer they could grab. You know, <laughs> I didn't mention the Blacktop Bully and Dustin Rhodes and the uh, King of the Road match in WCW. Would I want to see that in the WWF? No, but would you want to see a back alley brawl uh, in WCW? I think that was uh, actually well done by the WWF, and that was a cool concept for a uh, a one-off match at wrestlemania 12 so i don't know but uh there's one thing we also didn't mention in this show and that what was ecw doing during that time and that's also the little wild card we may throw into that discussion into early 23 as uh just expanding this new generation universe timeline and what else is going on in the world so we'll call it a day we'll wrap it up with that uh Appreciate the uh, the listening to last week's episode. Got a great response, and we will continue that next week with a special guest to cover uh, more of the ins and outs of that 96 Survivor Series uh, timeline. And uh, what a time it was to be a wrestling fan, for sure, as the WWF was uh, kind of clinging to the Heartbreak Kid, but was the Heartbreak Kid maybe the uh, anvil that was carrying the WWF down? We'll talk about that next week. So if you want to follow me on social media, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter at IB exclusives on Instagram. My website is IBExclusives.com. Check out any of the new signing material I've got up there and some new merchandise that is also available on the uh, IB shop. And uh, if you want to subscribe to any podcast, why don't you check out eyes up here 
It's on the Creative Control Network every single week. One or two episodes dropping on Creative Control where uh, you get a lot of craziness coming out of the Queen of Extreme and myself on a weekly basis. So you uh, will not be disappointed. But uh, we'll get out of here for today. We'll catch you next time for New Generation Declassified. This is your old buddy, the Chadster. I will catch you on the flip side.